Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Two thousand seventeen. It's done. We did it. It was a doozy of a year in many ways, but we at Dewey Decibel we're focusing on year end cheer. Specifically, we're retreating into and re-examining some of our favorite things, and I'm sure yours too, books. It was a banner year for books and book appreciation, especially here at the American Library Association. We saw the start of ALA's Book Club Central, a new resource for book clubs and readers featuring reviews, author interviews, and more, chaired by actor, producer, and avid reader Sarah Jessica Parker. We host conference talks by writers like Stephanie Powell Watts, Andy Weir, Ron Chernow, Annette Gordon-Reed, and public figures turned authors like Hillary Clinton, Neil Patrick Harris, and W. Kamal Bell. Booklist Magazine recognized the 50-year anniversary of the young adult novel with a year-long celebration. I can go on and on and on. This month on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we look back at some book highlights from the past year. First, American Library's Associate Editor Tara Dinkowski talks to author Stephanie Powell Watts in a conversation taped right after her book, No One Is Coming to Save Us, was announced by Sarah Jessica Parker as the first selection in ALA's Book Club Central. Next, I talked to Andy Weir, author of The Martian, which was adapted into an Oscar-winning film. I spoke with Weir at ALA's annual conference in Chicago about seeing his book adapted to the big screen, and we talked about his new book, Artemis, which was just released this past November. Finally, I sat down with Booklist Books for Youth editor Daniel Krause to discuss the magazine's 50-year YA campaign, including its list of the 50 best YA books of all time. But first, a message from a sponsor. The American Library Association is the voice of the library profession. We're your tireless advocate, working to ensure that your concerns and needs are heard and met on the local, national, and international stage. We connect you to friends and colleagues throughout the library world, helping to create vibrant, supportive professional circles. We help identify emerging trends and technologies that will allow you to better serve your patrons and communities today and in the future. But we need your support to do this. As 2017 comes to an end, consider contributing to ALA's annual fund. Your tax-deductible donation will help the association fight and work for you throughout the year. Last year was the first time that ALA conducted a targeted end-of-year fundraising drive, and we succeeded thanks to members and listeners like you who included us in your year-end giving. ALA serves all types of libraries, and you can direct your donation to a specific ALA division or department if you choose. To learn more about the ALA Annual Fund or to make a donation, visit ala.org slash donate. In June, at the ALA Annual Conference in Chicago, ALA launched Book Club Central, a resource for book clubs and readers with author interviews, reviews, and more. Actor, producer, and book fan and advocate Sarah Jessica Parker serves as honorary chair of the club and shows its first featured book, No One Is Coming to Save Us by Stephanie Powell Watts, published by Echo and imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. The lauded novel is an exploration of the American dream amongst African Americans in the South. It's a story about the ghosts of the past and departed, as well as the lives of the living. It's a complex, post-integrationist tale that charts new territory. ALA Associate Editor Tara Dankowski spoke with Stephanie shortly after she learned that her book was selected for the club. 
Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Um, congratulations on your debut novel, No One Is Coming to Save Us. Uh, how did it feel to have your novel picked as the first selection of ALA's Book Club Central? It's um, absolutely thrilling. Um, I, I can't even tell you how um, surreal it is. People have to remind me that it happened. <laughs> you know, and, um, and so I have uh, I have photographic evidence, so I'm sure that it actually happened. Um, but it, it has been one of the thrills of my life. I, I have evidence. I, I was there. I was there at annual conference. Um, yeah, what was it like having a book discussion with uh, Donna Seaman and Sarah Jessica Parker in front of hundreds of people? It was fantastic. And Donna Seaman, she is such a, a good writer. She is really, she's a good um, reviewer and writer. And so it was a, a thrill to be with her. And also Sarah Jessica Parker. I mean, I had no idea that um, she was such a good writer too. The introduction that she did for for the book and the care that she took with um, with reading the book and coming up with questions for it. I mean, it, it was just really a, an honor. That's great. Um, so for those who haven't read your book, it's wonderful. It's the story of an extended African-American family in North Carolina and their visions of the American dream. And it's quite evocative of The Great Gatsby. Um, Stephanie, can you tell us a little about your process writing this book? Did you start with the Gatsby framework? Did you have the characters and themes and the mood in mind first? I did have the characters in mind, and I've been working with these characters for some time. I did not start with Gatsby, although really when I came to the, the idea that this, this was a story about a, a return, um, to to a hometown and to a place of uh, a way of life and to a past. When I started thinking about that, then um, then Gatsby, which is one of of my favorite books, then the Gatsby idea took hold. But I didn't start that way. I spent some some years actually with these characters. They were much younger, and uh, and it was much closer to a central tragedy of the of the book. But um, once I thought about that, this is not so much a, uh, a haunting, but a return, then, um, then it started to get, I started to get some focus about it. Yeah. Now, I also read um, the essay you wrote for Lit Hub. Um, I love The Great Gatsby, even if it doesn't love me back, which I loved. Uh -huh. um, you talk about the whiteness of classic literature. And I, I kind of laughed when you said the book is really about the great Nick. You know, I never right. thought of him as an ally before, but I'm going to start calling the book The Great Nick. Um, <laughs> write, writing No One Is Coming to Save Us, um, I mean, if you didn't start with Gatsby in mind, but when you got to the end, would you say, like, did you realize it was kind of a way to upend this historic white monopoly on the American dream? Were you kind of satisfied with what you had at the end? I, I did. I did want to uh, insert my characters uh, into the story where they already were. They just weren't. They just weren't highlighted. And even in Gatsby, I feel like um, I feel like Gatsby has a lot to say about race and about whiteness, and uh, particularly about class privilege. Although I do think that it is, it is a story about um, about race too. But I, I I wanted to talk about some of those aspects of the story. That, and bring those to the forefront because I, I think uh, a lot of times we gloss over the parts of, of the story that um, that are that are there, even in, in stories that are mostly about white characters. And so I wanted to pull them back from from the shadows. 
Um, you know, uh, Fitzgerald didn't didn't plan at all to write a book about race, but I think that even with with those his omissions, that that in some ways that he really did that he wrote um, about race, about outsiders, about being and um, about trying to figure out what your identity is in a place that does not welcome you. And so, uh, in in those ways, it is a larger story about um, about what it means to be American. Yeah. One of the most uh, compelling aspects of your book, I think, is um, just, you know, the details you, the very deliberate details you give to the the themes and the characters' own relationships to to race and class and cultural capital um, in this declining factory town. Um, You have JJ, who is seen as someone who, uh, quote-unquote, advanced the cause, credited the race. You address the mass incarceration epidemic. Um, Sylvia and Ava are highly cognizant of what they think it means to be, quote, trashy. Um, Carrie didn't know Henry or any black person in high school. Um, as a writer, is it is it difficult to decide, you know, which, you know, telling deliberate details to include about each character's relationship to these kinds of issues? Yes. <laughs> I think it really yes. is. Short answer, yes. It, it's, <laughs> right. I, I think it for me it takes uh, it takes a long time and it's also a, a real kind of digging into the character to figure out who that character is you know I mean and, and in that way it mimics what we do in in life trying to figure out who are our allies and what those people might might think or might say uh, how those people might feel so it does it takes me a while to figure out what that that um, that telling detail, and you know, I'm sure I don't always get it right, but but, um, but I'm always looking for just that thing that makes, um, you know, that brings the, the image out. Yeah. No, your images are great. It, it, it's very, um, it's very deliberate, but controlled, and I really like that in the book. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Homes and and housing is also um, like a central motif. You know, homes mean different things to um, different characters. Um, How how did you decide that you kind of wanted like the big home for JJ, similar to how um, Gatsby, you know, comes back into town with his, you know, his parties and his home, you know, Um, how did you decide on that overlap? I, I really wanted the uh, the house to be su- um, such an important kind of touchstone in the book because houses are so important for us as Americans. And I think even we even talk about um, millennials not having houses as a as a kind of um, opposite of what we think what we think of when we think of success. So it's still such a huge part of what we think of when we think of the American dream and we, we think of security, uh, we think of home. And so I, I wanted that to be a big part, uh, a big part of the book. And so in, so this, in this large way, JJ is trying to find a home and establish one. And he's hoping that by creating a literal one that he can have this symbolic and metaphorical one too. Um, but, you know, as, as, as we know, that isn't always the case. <laughs> that that the um, that the literal home has everything that we need. Yeah, yeah, and and I think one of the joys, the personal joys for me too, was um, kind of reading your book and and sussing out 
this type of symbolism and and then some of the similarities and differences to um, The Great Gatsby. I mean, you have a character who gets back to town and he says, I go by Jay now. And, um, you know, he has gaps in his history and and your ending to me evoked, um, uh, you know, the so we beat on boats against the current. It's it's uh, this this dreaming and this wanting and this longing and um, even your your dedication mentions the green lights. Um, my question is, did did you have fun, you know, deciding which of the more familiar, you know, throwback images to plant for the readers while making something entirely your own? Oh, I I, tell, I really do love Gatsby. It it has always been one of my favorite books. I think it's one of those books that kind of meets you where you are. You know, when you're when you're very young and you read it, there's a certain way you read it, and and so on. So I mean, I really do love it, and I think I did. Um, I did in in some ways. I was very deliberate about the kinds of, of images I wanted, but um, I tried as much as possible to forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to to let it go so that that I wasn't just. Um, you know, trying to mimic Fitzgerald, uh, you know, I, I would never want to be in that space. He, is, uh, he was such a, a, lyric, a lyrical and beautiful writer. And and also that I didn't want the trajectory of the story to feel, I wanted it to, to kind of ring a distant bell, but I didn't want it to feel familiar. I wanted these characters to have their, their own way. And um, and that's, that's one of the reasons I didn't want the ending for the... Um, for these, for my characters to be like, to be like his. Yeah. So, do you have any other uh, novels or short story collections in the works right now? Any any projects you have going on? You know, I'm I'm working on a novel, but or I think I think what will be a novel, but it's in it's in the early stages, so it's, I'm really wrestling with it and having having a hard time. <laughs> so, but uh, but I am working on one, and I've I've been fascinated with um, with Salem and the witch trials and um, that kind of thing, and just the the idea that um, that a few people can um, can overturn a community by um, by by what they by what they whisper, and so I'm really interested in that and and how um, and how we how we build community and how we try to care about each other and uh, and the things and the, the things that sometimes that we that are these invisible fingers that are trying to to uh, pull us apart and um, and I, I just feel like that we're we're at a space everybody is looking for. Um, so many people, not everybody certainly, but so many people are looking for connection and the things that that draw us together and make us a people. And so I'm, so I'm really fascinated by, by that. And so I have what I feel like is the big idea. So I have to just kind of winnow it down to who are the people who are going to um, kind of go through some of, some of those struggles. Uh, but still, I'm trying to make them as real and as multifaceted as as I can. So it's um, it's it's hard right now. You know, sometimes it's easy when you're writing something and and you feel like, oh, I've, I've got this, I understand this. But sometimes just working through it is is really difficult. And so I'm in a difficult place right now. 
Yeah, I'm I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> if it's anything like this, I'm sure it'll be great. I'm sure I'm sure we'll put it on Book, book Club Central too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, are you getting ready for the school year at Lehigh University, or are you still teaching? I am. I'm, I'm uh, teaching on the the 29th. Is my first day teaching. So not not very long from now. Yeah, that's so, so soon. It's a little bit. <laughs> have um so. have any of your students read uh, No One Is Coming to Save Us? They have, and they've been so sweet. They've sent me pictures of themselves withholding the book and you know and notes and, and things like that. It's it's been really lovely. And even if they didn't like it, they didn't tell me. So that's that's. <laughs> <laughs> How can you transform library data into impactful services? What feature do libraries value the most when evaluating information sources? Which were the most popular interlibrary loan titles for the last five years? What does S.R. Ranganathan, the father of modern library science, have to say about shyness? All these questions have been explored on the OCLC Next blog. So many libraries operate on behalf of a very local, specific audience. Whether you're at a public library serving one town or city, or an academic library taking care of your students and faculty, you best understand your users' needs. But that can be a challenge when it comes to synthesizing trends among libraries of different types, sizes, and countries. And that's where OCLC Next comes in. Because of OCLC's global reach, staff and member leaders from many disciplines are exposed to developments and ideas that reach across the entire library community. Uh, they wrap their thoughts into quick, compact posts in order to share knowledge from the world's libraries with you. So check out oc.lc next to read the latest post or subscribe to a weekly email. In 2015, the film The Martian created a mad buzz. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, from Best Picture to Best Adapted Screenplay to Best Actor for Matt Damon. Behind the film, though, is the book. The Martian, written by Andy Weir, is a marvel on many levels. Weir crowdsourced the book's science to assure that it was completely accurate, then he self-published it, first on his blog and then on Amazon, where it became one of the site's bestsellers. And then Hollywood called. I sat down with Andy in June at the ALA Annual Conference in Chicago to discuss The Martian and his new book Artemis, which was just released in November on Crown. You're the son of a physicist and engineer, and prior to your writing career, you worked as a computer programmer. At first glance, you have a life tailor-made for a STEM career. How did you transition to literature? Was writing always a part of your life? Well, it may look like I was tailor-made for a STEM career, and I, I guess I was, but uh, I always wanted to be a writer, just ever since I was a little kid. And I, I mean, I wrote really bad short stories starting from age eight or so onward. Um, but when the time came to go to college, I decided I want to be a writer, but I also want to eat regular meals. So I decided to go into computer programming. The Martian was your first published novel, and it's known for its adherence to science. You really nailed the details. What was the research process like for that work? I put a huge amount of research into The Martian. I, I wanted to make everything as, um, as technically accurate as I could. Um, and it took me about three years to write the book, and I would say about half of that was research. I started with more than a layman's knowledge of, of science and space, but still I had to do a huge, huge amount of work to find all the information I wanted. Um, my main research tool was Google. 
I didn't know anyone in the industry, um, so I just, uh, I just had to look around. What was it like seeing The Martian, your baby, your first book on the big screen? And how involved were you in the adaptation process? Uh, my main job on the film version was to cash the check. And I feel like I did that fairly well. Um, Drew Goddard wrote the screenplay, the adaptation. He did a fantastic job. He got nominated for an Oscar for it. Uh, and I really, I mean, I had certainly had no authority or any say over anything. Um, but they would ask me questions now and then. They, they'd come through, either Ridley or Drew would come through and ask, like, oh, you know, I have a science question or a technical question. It's not like Ridley Scott needs my creative advice, right? But uh, it was neat to be part of the process. Now, did what you see on the big screen match what was in your head while you were writing the book? Oh, wow, it was just amazing to, to watch it. I, I remember the first time I saw the movie, I was, uh, they, the Fox brought me into one of their little like, you know, their little private theaters on the Fox lot and showed it to me with a bunch of people actually from JPL, uh, who had come from Pasadena to LA to watch it. It was just amazing. Like, I, I, I did cry when I saw that title placard come up for the first time. I'm like, oh my God, this has actually happened. Um, it was a, a fantastic adaptation, and it was really different from the way I imagined it in my head but it was still amazing, so I was really happy. <laughs> Your new book, Artemis, is an altogether different book, but still rooted hardcore in sci-fi. It's a crime thriller set on the moon. Tell us a bit more about the book. Artemis is uh, a, a crime thriller set on the moon. Uh, the main character is a woman who, um, she's really, really broke all the time, and she gets an opportunity to do this perfect score. And, uh, of course, no perfect score is ever perfect. If it, if it was, it wouldn't be a very interesting book, would it? Um, again, I tried to stay really, really true to the science. Although this is uh, definitely, it's not just uh, the Martian with a new skin on it. It's not just the Martian on the moon. It's, uh, there's a whole city up there. It's, it's not a survival story. It's, uh, well, frankly, cops and robbers. What was its inspiration? Like all of my uh, stories, it comes from just kind of daydreaming. And, uh, well, The Martian came from me trying to figure out how to, how to do a, a, a um, sending humans to Mars with modern technology. Artemis came from me trying to figure out how can you build a city on the moon. And so once I had the idea of how a city could be built on the moon, then I started thinking about cool stuff that would happen in that city. Kind of that was the foundation of Artemis. It's interesting, the main character, Jazz, was in my, uh, I went through a lot of different versions of story ideas and concepts for Artemis, and Jazz was always a secondary or minor character. But then I just realized that every revision, she started to become more and more prominent. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is the most interesting character I've come up with for this, for this uh, setting. Why don't I make the book about her? And uh, I'm, I'm really happy I did. What was the research process like for Artemis as compared to The Martian? I was actually more restricted on research for Artemis than I was on The Martian because uh, with The Martian I was self-publishing it at the time and so I got read back from, uh, I had a few thousand regular readers uh, when I was posting The Martian and so they would tell me when I got anything wrong because there's nothing a nerd likes more than finding an error in a science story. I mean I do it all the time, I love it, oh, it's just a special feeling of awesomeness. And so they'd send it in to me. Uh, but for Artemis, of course, it's a traditional publishing contract. I couldn't post things on the internet a chapter at a time or anything. So I, you know, I wrote the whole book and 
as of the time that we're filming this, there probably only been about 20 people in the world who've read the whole book yet. Uh, maybe more by now. But, um, but it's just like I, I don't have that thousands and thousands of engineers looking over my text to tell me where I did things wrong. So it's, uh, I have to make sure to get it all right on the first try. And I'm sure I made some mistakes. I hope they're small, though. But yes, I did do a ton of research. And Artemis, is, even though it takes place further in the future than The Martian, it um, is more scientifically grounded, I would say. It's even, more, it's even more true to the science we have today. What role did the library play in your life growing up? Well, I'm, I'm old enough that I'm from a generation from before the internet or even before computers. So if you wanted information, you had to go to a library. Uh, I, I spent a lot of my time in my, in my high school's library and also my city library. I grew up in Livermore, California. And so the Livermore Library, I, I spent a lot of time there. That's where I research just funky stuff. I just go there to look things up. I always liked that. Also, one of my favorite things to do in a library was um, look at microfiche of old newspapers. I used to like to go like, hey, what was, what, what was in the newspaper, you know, the day I was born? Or, hey, let's, let's see how they reported on, you know, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. That sort of stuff. So I guess I had a lot of fun doing research at libraries. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't check out books very often. Generally, when I wanted a book, I just bought it. Also, my father had an inexhaustible supply of science fiction books that he, I don't think the man's ever thrown away a book. And so there was just bookshelves and bookshelves. In a way, I had a library, a library just right there in my family room. We all know about Hoopla, right? Of course. Hoopla Digital is a revolutionary digital service that brings hundreds of thousands of movies, full music albums, audiobooks, and more to your library. From Hollywood blockbusters to best-selling artists and authors, uh, but not just the hits, you can also find niche and hard-to-find titles as well. You'll, you'll find them all on Hoopla. Hoopla Digital can be a part of everyday life for everyone, and today, that includes kids with the new Hoopla Kids Mode setting. Hoopla Kids Mode is the gateway to a multi-format family digital media experience. All the content books, videos, and music has been selected and brought together in one place to give kids and families an environment where young minds can explore and discover the world around them safely through media. Check out the Hoopla Kids mode on Hoopla. For more information, you can find it at hoopladigital.com. 2017 was a big year for young adult books. In particular, it was the 50th anniversary of the first YA novel. Bookless Magazine, one of our sister publications here at ALA, waged a year-long campaign to celebrate, including compiling a list of the 50 best YA novels of all time. I sat down with Daniel Krauss, Bookless Books for Youth editor, and a friend of Dewey Decimal, he was on our Halloween episode two years ago, to learn more about Bookless 50 Years of YA campaign. Dan. Thanks for joining us again on the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Yeah, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Yeah, uh, we're here to discuss the 50 best YA books of all time. This book list initiative is going on all year. Um, 50, that's that's quite a task, comparing <laughs> down to 50. Um, I guess the first question would be, like, how did you do that? I mean, if you look at the list, some of our listeners, whether you've seen the list, uh, there are recognizable names on there, recognizable authors, there's some obscure uh, 
titles, spans genres. How did you whittle the breadth of YA literature down to 50? Yeah, it's, it's an impossible task because you're dealing with 50 years of books. Uh, we do our best of every year and we know how difficult it is to just come up with our 50 best books of one year. Like that's nearly impossible itself. We're just talking one year. So when you're talking 50 years, it's almost like the impossibility of it almost made it easier. Mm -hmm. Like there's no way we can do this without screwing it up. Like we're gonna make so many mistakes and no one's gonna agree with what we come up with. So there's a little bit of freedom there uh, because we were doomed from the conception of the idea. You just, it's an impossible task. But that, that also made it kind of exciting, you know, because it was such a, a crazy thing to try to take on that, I don't know, I get excited by crazy ideas. Um, biting off more than we can chew. So we, we bit it off maybe about 18 months ago and spent, I want to say, let's say six months on the process. And that's not like every day for six months, but we would meet and sort of talk about books and then we'd kind of go back, go away for a while and uh, go back to work and rethink some of the, the things we've done and reread some stuff that uh, we hadn't read in a while or some people had never read. Uh, we all on staff read a bunch of stuff again, of course, but we also reached out to longtime contributors um, to get their takes on things and just came up with this initial pile of books um, and started making cuts there's no there was no real good way to start it you know you just start hacking away um and I, overall i'm really happy with it like i think everyone every one of us was really happy where it ended up i uh i love to see stuff on the list that isn't expected and there was i think at the end of the day a lot of stuff on our list that isn't on other lists of this sort I don't know what the point of a list of this sort would be if it's the 50 most expected books of all time. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that's the redundant list. So it was exciting to sort of rediscover or shine a spotlight on some stuff that had been overlooked for a long time. Uh, what are some of those surprises? Well, let me try to remember. So obviously we have your classics, you know, we do have like The Outsiders, Bassey Hinton, Judy Blooms Forever, all these kind of things. But one example is William Sleater's uh, Singularity. Now he's a pretty well-known author. Uh, he's most known probably for The House of Stairs, which was a book from 1974. Uh, but Singularity, not one of his better-known titles, uh, to me is one of the best you know, books of all time. So this is one of mine that I kind of brought in and championed and got people on board with. Uh, it's just a brilliant, brilliant, twisted, dark, strange, almost obscene in some parts book, but that hides all of it be behind this kind of sci-fi story that feels sort of light and fluffy, but there's so much going on there. Another great example is a book called Living Dead Girl by Elizabeth Scott that came out uh, about 10 years ago. And that's a book that you're not going to find in any list like this. 
Um, I'm not tr trying to hammer away at the dark and disturbing books here. We have plenty of optimism on the list as well. But Living Dead Girl is another book that is just uh, shocking and startling in, in its content and is something that made us all kind of sit up and notice again and say, wow, how is not everyone still talking about this? Now, you'd mentioned you, that was, those were books that you championed. I'm sure everyone involved in the process had books that they championed. What, I guess, what was the deliberation process? Like, were, were people fighting for their, for their books? What concession, did, were there a lot of concessions that had to be made? Yeah, and, totally. And the, the, the challenge in doing this list or any list is not to end up with a list that's total consensus. Mm -hmm. Because once you get a list that everyone agrees on every title, it starts to uh, be safer. You know, you start coming up with a list that you all could agree on. It's sort of like in the Zen diagram, you're right in the middle. And we wanted to avoid that. We wanted to have some stuff that had a little edge to it or, and allow, allow titles that not everyone could agree on to some, somehow still be represented. So that's the challenge anytime you do a, a list, to not just be samey. So yeah, there was a, there were, everyone had their favorites. Um, every, but again we were dealing with so many books that the pain of losing your favorites became numb pretty quickly mm -hmm. because we all had to lose it wasn't like when we do our best of, the, of a single year uh in this case you're losing you're losing dozens and dozens and dozens of books that you wanted on there so very quickly you sort of get over it yeah and you you kind of figure out where your heart is really really talking to you at, at this book over these 20 others and um, it it was I think at, be, at the beginning it was more fraught because it was more painful to see books go but really as it went you became more cognizant that okay our list is still 300 books long you know we really have to be brutal here now let's talk a bit about the premise itself the the, the 50 best YA books um, why you, there's there's a cutoff of 1967, The Outsiders, Hidden Outsiders. Why did you choose that book in that time as the beginning? Yeah, that's a good question. There are young adult books before The Outsiders, but they're sort of few and far between or books that were published as adult and sort of embraced by young adult. Mm -hmm. It's generally considered that The Outsider was the first sort of modern young adult book that sort of launched the genre as we know it today. So that made a lot of sense. Uh, you can make arguments for other books, but I think if you had to have a consensus on the beginning of the young adult genre, uh, as we know it today, you'd start with The Outsiders. So that was a book we were aware of. We became cognizant that its 50th anniversary was coming up and it also seemed to make sense. 50 became sort of the operative number and we did a you know, our campaign was really just 50 years of YA, and we uh, did all sorts of features and events all year, but the sort of crown jewel in it was the list of the 50 books, which we published in our June issue. Um, now, what kind of response have you received from book list readers to your list? You know, it's been really uh, pretty good, and I was, I didn't know what to expect. There were certainly, uh, you know, online discussions here and there about this isn't on there and that's not on there but 
overall, we must have done something right because generally the responses were of the sort that were kind of like, this list is full of surprises, but I respect them. You know, like mm-hmm. these were, so there's some unusual choices here, but I kind of respect how unusual it is. And I, well, I'll just leave it at that. Cut that <laughs> a little bit up. And uh, where can our listeners find the list? Well, it was in our June 2017 issue, so you can go to uh, booklistonline.com and just search 50 best YA books of all time and you'll pop up. Awesome. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, anytime. And that wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. I'd like to thank Stephanie Powell Watts, Andy Weir, and Daniel Krauss for joining us today. Tune in next month as we look at diversity in comic books. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Join the conversation. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear from us on this podcast. Or you can shoot me an email at deweydecibel at ala.org. I want to hear from you. I promise I'll respond. Also, iTunes users, leave us a a review or a rating. It helps us move up in the rankings so we can reach more ears. Until then, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Because there's nothing a nerd likes more than finding an error in a science story. Yeah.